great friend of some history. We have been cooperating over a longer period of time and an author in his own right, Daryl Shoon and his charming wife Martha. And uh, Daryl will chair the sessions in the sense that if there are questions which you should feel to ask any time, there's no such thing as question period. So when you think we have the luxury of being a small group, and therefore feel free to ask your question when it occurs to you. And Daryl will repeat the question and then I'll try my best to answer them. Uh, there are a few more coming uh, who asked to be excused. So uh, tomorrow we'll have a few more, not all that many more, but at least two. And uh, we are going to meet three times a day, in the morning at 10, and the, in the afternoon at 2.30, and again at 4.30. And there will be uh, a last lecture, which is uh, going to be on Friday morning. So altogether there are 13 lectures. Uh, Daryl is going to take over one. We haven't yet decided which one, but we'll work. it won't be today, so we'll give you plenty of notice. I also call your attention to the fact that this material will be available in writing, and hopefully as we go during this week, we'll give out uh, Printouts. This lecture series, which is entitled The Real Bill's Doctrine of Adam Smith and Its Relevance Today, has been around for some years. In fact, it was, uh, on, it has been on the internet. Uh, I put it on in 2002, so that's almost uh, uh, six years ago. I have not made an effort to make major changes. After all, uh, in six years' time, there are changes. But I decided that we'll just work on the basis of that. Uh, you will treat these as an older edition and you are part of the effort to update it because when it comes to uh, editing this for a second edition then I will incorporate whatever input I was able to draw from this group. So uh, the, there are, as I say, 13 lectures available already in print. I'm not going to follow them slavishly. In fact, uh, the, the very first one I will uh, change. Something more recent uh, came around, which I'm going to use as an inaugural lecture. However, I am recommending this. I'm not going to make this as a, as a separate lecture. 
but it's called the inaugural, inaugural lecture, which is Ayn Rand's Hymn to Money. It's a literary masterpiece, and I cannot recommend it highly enough. And, uh, and I'm going to ask you to have a reprint, not at your convenience, but I would like to have this distributed. Uh, I'm not going to give it to you because I'm going to start with a quote from that. So this is replaced as an inaugural lecture by a recent piece which I put on the internet just a few days ago. And the title is Open the Mint to Gold and Silver. I wonder if, pe if people have this, uh, have a copy. Yeah, you have your uh, program and it's already uh, marked there, open the mint to gold and silver. Uh, people asked me on the internet to explain and in response I wrote that piece and then while I wrote it I thought it might just serve as a good introduction to this lecture series. So let me give you the background. I start by saying that money is a constitutional concept. A good country, a well-organized country has a constitution and the constitution has to provide for uh, what and how could be used for money. And therefore there is this term constitutional money. And this is very important. And uh, the important thing is that you should not think of the central bank, or in the case of the United States, the Federal Reserve as the uh, institution which creates money. Because the Constitution reserves the right to create money to the people. Only certain powers are delegated to the government. Those are listed and enumerated powers. And creating money and its counterpart, extinguishing money, is not one of those powers. This is a power which is specifically reserved to the people. So I start with a quotation from Ayn Rand, Hymn to Money. By the way, Hymn to Money was not independently published by Ayn Rand. She wrote the uh, very famous novel, very important novel, Atlas Shrugged was published in 1958. It's a 1600 page work and somewhere in that work is buried an excerpt which is uh, what I renamed him to money. She didn't even bother giving it a name but it's, an, it's, a, it's a, a germ, a literary germ which exists on its own right, 
and uh, uh, when I, I remember I have read it many many years ago I would like to incorporate it so <laughs> it took me quite some time to find I had the book but in those 1600 pages I had to find where that, that was and it was not easy because I just had to read uh, big chunks before I found it. So I think this, is, this, uh, this piece deserves to be known separately from uh, the uh, uh, novel from which it is taken and uh, I am going to read a quotation from her which I thought uh, from uh, him to money which I recommend to you as an introduction to this inaugural lecture Okay. Uh, here it is. It's uh, uh, a paragraph I gave the subtitle to The Essence of Morality. If you ask me to name the proudest distinction of Americans, I would choose, because it contains all the others, the fact that they were the people who created the phrase to make money. No other language or no other nation has ever used this combination of words before. Men have always thought of wealth as a static quantity to be seized, bagged, inherited, shared, looted, or obtained as a favor. Americans were the first to understand that wealth must be created. The phrase to make money holds the sense of morality. Yet these words for which the Americans were denounced by the rotten cultures of Luther's continents and the Luther's credo has brought you to regard your proudest achievements as a hallmark of shame, your prosperity as guilt, your greatest men, the industrialists, as blackguards, and your magnificent factories as the product and property of muscular labor, the labor of whip-driven slaves, no better than the pyramids of Egypt. The rotter who simpers that he sees no difference between the power of gold and the power of the whip ought to learn the difference on his own hide. And I think he will. 
So with this uh, introduction, oh, I may read another sentence or two, which has the uh, subtitle, Blood, Whips and Guns on one hand, Gold on the other. Until and unless you discover that money is the root of all good, you ask for your own destruction. When money ceases to be the tool by which men deal with one another, men become the tool of man. Blood, whips and guns, the one hand, or gold on the other. Take your choice. There is no other. And your time is running out. So with this, I did my best to <laughs> introduce the topic. Think of money as something that has to be created. And it's the people who create it. There is no wisdom invested in any body such as Central Bank or Federal Reserve or government which is sufficient for the purpose of creating money. It's the combined wisdom of all the people who are working and producing and saving, who have that knowledge, who have that aptitude, which cannot be delegated. And you can have any number of elections, it's not going to make it better, it's going to make it worse. You have to have a machinery whereby money is created by the people themselves. And that's the very interesting thing. This is not going to be a bank or a central bank. And this institute has existed for at least 2,500 years, if not longer. Because that institute is known as the Mint. And this is not a modern idea. Banking, central banking, these are relatively very modern ideas. But the Mint goes back to antiquity, to the Greeks, and more recently the, the Romans, but that's still 2,500 years ago. And um, I want to tell you uh, that little story, which might well be known to you. Uh, today it's referred to as a legend, but I think it does have historical uh, uh, roots. It did happen that Rome, early Rome, which was a city established by Romulus, uh, the founder of Rome, uh, ha had to fight all kinds of enemies in its early history. And one of these enemies uh, were the Gauls, who crossed the Alps and came all the way to uh, Rome and challenged its authority. Now, according to this legend, the Gauls put Rome under siege. And uh, Rome had very good defenses, 
and the inhabitants were sleeping at night in the knowledge that they were secure. But the bulls were uh, uh, smart enough to use a tactic for which the Romans weren't prepared. They decided to take the city at night. And uh, Capitolium was the name of the heart of the city. It was on a hill, one of the seven hills on which Rome was built. And uh, one side of the hill was a steep rocky cliff which uh, the Romans thought that they did not have to worry about uh, defending, especially because it was unscalable, that's what they thought. But the Gauls took uh, advantage of this and during the uh, cover of the night they climbed up on the steep uh, cliff one by one and their plan to take the city by surprise at night would have succeeded except for one fact which the Gauls were not uh, taking into account. And this fact was that on Capitolium at the top of that hill there was a temple. A temple to the goddess Juno. And Juno was the wife of the chief god Jupiter, uh, the lord of all other gods. And the temple of Juno was housing the mint. The mint was a sacred place. It had, it intertwined with religion. The two couldn't be completely separated. And the place where they put the mint was in a sacred place and inviolable because the uh, because they considered Juno the protector of the city. So they put the mint right in the temple of Juno. And uh, it was the custom that on the ground of the temple there were geese devoted to the goddess Juno. These were known as the sacred geese of Juno. Now they were uh, taken care of, they were fed, but otherwise they were free to graze around and so on. And the geese, when they noticed the Gauls climbing up the hill, they started cackling loud. So loud in fact that the people of Rome were alerted. They woke up and they realized something was wrong and they attributed this to Juno that they were given advanced warning of the attack and the attack was repelled and Rome was saved. So ever after, the Romans referred to Juno, Juno Moneta. In other words, they gave Juno the surname Moneta. And the original <coughs> meaning of Moneta was 
vigilant, Juno the vigilant, or Juno the forewarner. Juno was the one who warned the city of the danger and thereby saving them using the instrumentality of her sacred geese. And ladies and gentlemen, that's why today we uh, have the word money in the English language. Because money is derived from the Latin word moneta, which means vigilance or vigilant. <coughs> so I think this is symbolical and important legendary we admit but it's a wonderful legend because we have the name the very word money associated with the idea of vigilance there is a connotation vigilance just as Ayn Rand in her hymn to money explains it so beautifully <coughs> Money will not survive as constitutional money unless you have vigilance because there are looters around who are anxious to grab the power and it's e the easiest way of grabbing the power if you go after constitutional money. So the founding fathers of the American Republic were very conscious of that and they took care to put the so-called monetary clauses into the Constitution. And the first monetary clause is the establishment of the Mint. <coughs> The mint is the instrumentality by which people exercise their power of creating money. Because this is what happens. There are two ways you can have gold. One is to dig it out. If you are mining gold, you dig it out or you can inherit old jewelry within the family or work for it and then you have your savings in the form of jewelry but in short term you can convert gold no matter how it came into your possession into money by taking it <coughs> to the mint now this could be raw gold or old jewelry, or what have you, but the mint will take it <coughs> and give you the gold coins of the realm one to one. In other words, the mint will not charge you for coinage, that's your constitutional right to demand the same weight and fineness of gold when you get the coins back from the mint. I'm not going to go into technical details but obviously there it would cost money to 
uh, say the goal, just to decide how what's the fineness of the gold and if necessary it might have to be refined to the statutory uh, fineness and so on. There is a charge for that but the actual cost of <coughs> producing the gold coin should be absorbed by the government the same way as the government absorbs the cost of constructing and maintaining public roads. Uh, it costs money to build them and of course during wear and tear the quality of the road is deteriorating something has to be done about that the government takes care of uh, maintaining the road. The same way with coinage uh, it costs money to produce them that should be covered through taxation and then during usage the coins get worn there is some percentage of loss and th this loss should be covered <coughs> again out of taxes I got uh, lots of feedback from people who read uh, my articles on the internet and as a large number of uh, people say we don't want the government to bother with with uh, maintaining a mint there should be private mints well if a private mint is willing to absorb the cost of producing the coins and maintaining the uh, 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 the uh, quality of these, in other words, when they get too worn, these gold coins, then uh, the private mint would have to take a worn coin and give back uh, to you a, a freshly minted, <coughs> full-bodied gold coin, and that's a loss which the mint, a private mint, will not absorb. So my answer to these people who criticize the role of the government in minting coins is that if you have find a way to uh, cover these costs other than covering them out of taxation, fine and well. But I doubt that you will because uh, 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 the important thing is that the mint should be open to gold <coughs> to the unlimited mintage of gold free of seniorage charges seniorage is a word which you might say is equivalent to tax if the mint charges a tax or a fee for coining it's we don't say it's open to gold the mint is not open to gold the mint is producing <coughs> uh, gold coins as a souvenir pieces for the entertainment entertainment of the people they are not providing a constitutional uh, money to them uh, another group of people from another angle criticize me that 
What are you talking about opening the mint? The mint is already open to gold and silver. Look at the gold eagle coinage. Look at uh, the Canadian maple leaf coins. Look at the Chinese panda coins. Look at the Australian koala coins and other competing government also chime in and they uh, pick a sacred animal and uh, give the people. These are not constitutional gold coins. This was introduced, these coinages were introduced for the purposes of fooling the people. People may think that <coughs> we had the possibility of making contracts in gold or using gold for purchases. But you see, people are not interested. That's wrong. It means that the government succeeded in misleading the people because as long as the coinage of gold is not free of seniorage charges, if it's not an unlimited right, you as an individual have the unlimited constitutional right to take as much gold to the mint and convert it one for one the same weight of gold coins coin of the realm money which should be recognized if you had that right you had constitutional money if there's a surcharge or there's a limitation on the amount you can convert into gold or there's any other way then there is no constitutional money so this is important. It's an important concept <coughs> to put side by side the two ideas, two institutions. One is the mint, an ancient thing. And the other is a modern concept, the bank. And if you think that these are just two ways of providing money, you are wrong because there is a world of difference between the two. The mint gives you constitutional money if it's free and unlimited coinage of the precious metals, gold and silver, and the bank where there is 100% seniorage because you get paper money which costs practically zero to the government to produce and you have the, as an individual, you have to surrender goods and services 100% in order to get that money. That's 100% seniorage as compared with 0% seniorage for constitutional money, money produced by the mint. Now in that piece which I put on the internet, I <laughs> included uh, two or three sentences which uh, may sound like a prayer, but uh, this is rhetorical, this is literary, but I think it catches the idea. I say, as if it was a prayer, O Juno Moneta, where art thou?
And where are thy sacred bees? Oh, sacred Greece of Juno, whither migrated thee? Why are thee not cackling now as a new attempt is being prepared to murder innocent people in their sleep? <coughs> So, uh, we'll, we'll make, make a copy available this to you. Some of you might have already seen it on the internet. It was just a few days ago that it came on, but... The important thing is that the, the United States did have a mint which met the description of constitutional money in the early years. And that mint had to be closed down. It's no longer open to gold. It had to be closed down forcibly by the strong arm of the government. It had to be closed down in order to deny people access to constitutional money. Now where are the schools in the United States where the kids are told about this, I wonder? And why aren't they told about this? That the Constitution gave them a right and the symbol of that right was the mint and the mint has been closed up. <coughs> and if you say that, the government will come to you and say, what? are you talking about? The mint is not closed. Look at the small change in your pocket. All these coins were produced by the various mints of the United States. What they don't say is that there is a difference between full-bodied gold and silver coins. Full-bodied means that if you melt down the coin, uh, the metal content you recover is exactly the same as the nominal value of the coin. Now if you do that to the subsidiary coinage, you get a small fraction of metal <coughs> value if you melt it down, which is nowhere near to the um, uh, nominal value. And that's what small children should be taught in school, that there is theft and theft. There is theft which is outright, such as somebody breaking into a house and looting it. But there's also a much more subtle kind of theft which the government can uh, perpetrate on individuals not on just selected, but on all individuals, when the government issues coins under false pretenses that here it is, this has value because I stamped it, I the government stamped it, here it is, take it, it's your money. And what actually happened is a violation of your constitutional right. It's written in the Constitution. It has been, they didn't have the moral courage to change the Constitution. 
Probably they could have tried, but they didn't even take the chance of trying to change the Constitution to conform it to the modern practice of <coughs> issuing money with 100% seniorage charges, whereas the Constitution demands that the government issue money with 0% seniorage. The difference between 0% and 100%, and it can be just hushed up so that people, and I'm no longer talking about kindergarten kids, I'm talking about mature individuals, they haven't got the idea that their constitutional right to free coinage has been taken away and by force, simply by closing the mint to gold and silver. Uh, I could say a few words about William Jennings Bryan, uh, who was a Democrat at the end of the 19th century. He was running as the Democratic candidate for the presidency in the 1896 presidential election year. And his slogan as a candidate he did get the nomination, by the way, of the Democratic Party, but he lost the election. It was McKinley, William McKinley, uh, the Republican who got elected in that. But that has nothing to do with my story. My story, and by the way, William Jennings Bryan is not my hero by any means. I, I am very, very critical about it. and. Uh, he, he got back uh, and became heavily involved in politics after the election of President Woodrow Wilson. I think it was in the year 1912. And William Jennings Bryan became the Secretary of State in the uh, Woodrow uh, Wilson administration. And there is uh, somewhere in Washington, uh, whether it's the Capitol building or one of the public buildings, there is a huge uh, painting of Woodrow Wilson signing the Federal Reserve Act into law in the year 1913. Actually, it was Christmas Eve, I think, if I remember correctly the day in 1913 when he did that and there is a small group of people around Woodrow Wilson sitting at the desk and signing the bill and a, a, a group of people watching him standing um, and one of them the chief figure standing behind Wilson is William Jennings Bryan. I think it's, I, I wish I could get hold of a, a, a reprint of that picture and put it on the internet and I could write a little story about that. The smile on his face is unmistakable as William Jennings Bryan looking at the president as if the major motivation of his life, of his mission in life, has been fulfilled with this signature. Fiat money is done. We've taken away 
the right of the people to create money. So, having criticized William Jennings Bryan as an enemy of constitutional money, I must give credit where credit is due. And I would say I have not made an independent historical study of that. And uh, it uh, may be interesting for somebody to pursue this. But I have a feeling that in 1896, William Jennings Bryan was a little bit uh, more reasonable. And in fact, he was more on the side of the Constitution at that time. Because his slogan in this presidential election year of 1896 was the crime of 1873. And the year 1873 was the year when the U.S. Mint was closed to silver. And it was closed to silver through a trick. There was no vote, there's no constitutional amendment proposal, there was just a simple forgetfulness on the, pri on the uh, part of the Treasury to mention the standard silver dollar as one of the coins that would be produced. So in other words, the administration submitted a bill to Congress which gave you a list of all the coins which should be produced. And there was the copper, there was the nickel, there was the dime, sure there was the silver dime, there was a silver quarter, there was the silver half dollar, we just forgot to mention, the, but there, there was a hell of a difference between the half dollar, and, and, and it was not that this was half of that, but the silver dollar was a full-bodied silver coin, and the 50, 50 cent piece was not a full-bodied there was a seniorage, the zero seniorage, here there was probably 10 or 15 percent seniorage and the other, all the other coins, more on the copper, but on the silver coins there was say 10 or 15 percent seniorage. So by hook or crook the US Mint was closed to the free coinage of silver in the year 1873. And William Jennings Bryan picked on that and they made it a whole issue and they described it as a conspiracy on the part of the banking interest and the financial interest in the United States who had this uh, right taken away from the people. And I just have to feel sympathetic to that charge. 
Um, I don't want to go uh, any deeper in, into that story because as I say, I don't want to make a hero out of uh, William Jennings Bryan. I just say that let's give credit where credit is due. I honor him for saying uh, the slogan, the crime of 1873. And he has another famous saying, which I, as a gold advocate, should not repeat, but I repeat it because I think it's so dramatic. He said, thou shalt not cross the people upon that Crucify. Thou shalt not crucify people on that cross of, cross of gold. gold, and thou shalt not push down that crown of thorns on the brow of labor. I mean, you, it tingles on your, on, on your spine when you hear that. You have to think of an orator, of an absolutely born and uh, orator like he was, which I am not, who, who could say that and then take the people uh, and had that the standing ovation and all that, having said that. Now, so it's, it's not an unmixed bag, but I would say there was a crime of 1873, and there was an even <coughs> bigger crime of 1973, when Nixon, earlier having closed the gold window, uh, defaulted on the, the United on the gold obligation, international gold obligations of the United States, and thereby put not just this country but the whole world squarely on the paper money system and that was 1973 and here we go 35 uh, years later having suffered of an, an incredible deterioration of the world financial system in the meantime and especially the position of this country, the United States, in international, in international trade and uh, the United States having lost its, its leadership and so on, which is really catastrophic. The dollar has lost 99% of its purchasing power since 1913, the year when Woodrow Wilson signed the Federal Reserve Act into law and none of the presidential candidates in this election year of 2008 is talking about the one except Dr. Ron Paul who is not even a major candidate because he is not even allowed I think it's very questionable that he will go anywhere with his uh, campaign, but let's <laughs> hold our breath. Yes, yes. Can I uh, clarify something, Professor? 
uh, in Ferdinand Lipp's book, uh, Gold Wars, uh, he talked, if I understand it correctly, he talked about how the, the crime of 1873 was sort of the first step in the, uh, the breaking of the, of the real mon of the hard money metal uh, uh, system by taking away silver. Uh, it sounds like it's not really a bad thing what uh, uh, William Jennings Bryan was saying in 1873, even if he later went on to be a fiat currency man. If his, if his outrage was, you can't take away either of the two legs, gold or silver, without damaging the system, and therefore, am I, am I understanding that right, or, okay. I think your question is very well justified. And I don't mind going into details. In fact, I'm prepared to go into details. I wouldn't have gone into details without your question, but since you asked the question, I'm going to answer it. This is a little bit complicated technically, because there are many things interplaying into this. The year 1871, if you recall, was the year when France lost the war against Prussia. So Prussia was the uh, victorious country and imposed a rather humiliating peace treaty on France, part of which was uh, payment of uh, war booty, what's the word for uh, one Reparations. Word. Reparation on the French in the order of, if my memory serves me well, five billion gold francs, which in those days was an inno incredible amount of money, and the French collected it and paid it, because they wanted to get out of debt. There was an urgency. They could have dragged their feet. They didn't. They just, the nation pulled together and raised the money and gave it to the Germans. Take it, and let's get on with life and forget. But that's not the point. The point is that the Germans wanted the gold because they had been a silver standard country and they wanted to join the, <coughs> the, the club and the club was gold standard club so they had to have the gold and they got the gold as a war booty as reparation. That's one thing. On the other side of the ocean there was the United States which was victorious against the South in the Civil War. And the United States, I'm not suggesting there was collusion with Germany, I'm not suggesting that, but it just so happened that about the same time the United States decided to drop the silver standard and join the rich man's club, the gold standard club, and that was the crime of 1873. And they did it underhandedly because they could have had a constitutional referendum. The silver dollar is mentioned in the US Constitution. 
and bimetallism isn't. It, it's mentioned only in uh, the co uh, coin eject, the first coin eject, I forget the, the, the year, 1790-something uh, or 1780-something, when uh, the uh, treasury suggested that there should be a fixed exchange rate between gold and silver. And this is not going to work. And they should have known better. And they were just ignorant. This was, anyhow, the silver, the uh, bimetallic exchange didn't work. And it broke down. It was going back and forth between gold standard and silver standard. Now the question is this. As it turned out, the United States, one victor on one side of the ocean, and Germany or Prussia or whatever on the other, another victorious country, they both decided to go gold and drop silver. And if they did it properly, I wonder what would have happened to silver money. As it happened, all this silver was dumped on the world market. The Germans dropped their silver, and uh, in the United States, uh, silver was not dumped on the market, but on the other hand, the mint was close to silver, which was a big chunk of the demand for silver. So. The world price of silver started dropping uh, dramatically. The uh, official price was $1.29 an ounce, and it started dropping, 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 and it dropped to well below $1 as a result of uh, Germany dumping silver and the United States closing them in to silver. I am wondering what would have happened if the Treasury officials honored the Constitution and they said, okay, we don't want the, the free coinage of the standard dollar, we want gold not silver. Question one, would the people of the United States have voted for that? We don't know the answer, but there's a chance that they wouldn't, because uh, the, certainly labor was in favor of silver. <coughs> the western states were in favor of silver. And if you press the issue, you might have found that the it's only the big, big uh, New York banks which were in favor of gold and not silver. We don't know the answer. And if the mint had been left open to silver, that we, might, we, we probably could establish without any uh, doubt that the silver price would not have dropped so precipitously because a lot of silver would have been redirected to the U.S. Mint and it would have become money. And, and therefore I'm suggesting it to you 
that, uh, that there are two ways of looking at this. One way, by the way, I started out the same as Ferdinand Lips. I, in my studies, I agreed that this bimetallism was not a workable monetary system, so it was a step in the right direction to phase silver out and make it gold monometallism. And then, as I studied the question longer, I came to the conclusion that this is not as simple as that. Because even if that is, was true, what Lips is saying, what I was saying at the time, that you have to do it properly. And then it's still a question whether you could get away with it, and if you could, what further effect it would have had. So my present thinking is that I think uh, the problem should have been rectified by metallism cannot be forced on the people. In other words, if there are two precious metals which the mint is open to uh, monetize, then there has to be a flexible exchange rate, the, the market dictated exchange rate. And secondly, <coughs> above all, the right of the people to create and extinguish money should be observed. And it's the people who should decide whether they wanted silver money or not. It was not a question to be decided by civil servants or politicians or what have you. And, and, and I think that's, uh, that's the way to look at it. So uh, let's leave that problem by saying that this is a very complicated issue because there are lots of technical uh, things involved here. And it, it, this can be settled in an hour. You have to study and uh, read a lot and study the legislature and so on and so forth and the constitution also. Uh, I admire the Constitution. You know something? The Constitution never says bimetallism. It was just the civil servants who thought that they now they got the power, now they can work it out. Hit on the word bimetallism and put it in the legislation. The Constitution only says open the mint to gold and silver. And it does give a priority to silver in the sense that it does mention the word the silver dollar, uh, the standard silver dollar, whereas it does not mention, uh, which it could have mentioned, the standard gold eagle coin, which was the, uh, the $20 gold piece. Could have mentioned that, but it didn't. So in that sense, you might say that the United States Constitution did give a slight advantage to silver, because it did mention the name of the standard coin. However, there's no question about it that the U.S. Constitution mentioned both metals, gold and silver, and the mint should be open to both of them. So those who had silver, they could 
create money, those who had gold or access to gold could create gold money and the market could decide then what the exchange rate. So um, I think that's as far as we can pursue this. Thanks for everyone's indulgence. It's, it's an especially important uh, question to me because I think that's what lies at the heart of predicting the future behavior of gold and silver relative to each other, which uh, is uh, of interest to a silver investor. Thanks. Now, uh, how time is it? Uh, we have about 15 minutes. So let's just get on with this. The subject is open the mint to gold and silver. <coughs> and the contrast between the two institutions, the mint and the central bank. The mint is not just a symbol, but it's a real instrument of power, the power of the people to create money. On the other hand, the central bank, not only it is a more recent development, it's a 17th century invention in Europe, and in the United States it wasn't even accepted. And when uh, a moneyed interest introduced the idea of the first bank of the United States, then there was a constitutional fight, and I think uh, the charter of the bank was up for renewal, and the president, was it Andrew Jackson, or who, who, who it, I think it was Andrew Jackson, but I'm not sure, uh, who refused to sign the renewal document, so the charter was not renewed, and the Central Bank of the United States died a natural death. There has been a precedent for that, and I could suggest, I could suggest a way to cause the natural death of the Federal Reserve System as well. And uh, some people would say, it's not revolutionary enough. We have to burn the building down. We've got no need for that. You just sign a proper legislation into law, and the thing will die a natural. There has been a precedent for that. And that precedent should be taught in the schools, so that the little kids would know about it. In any case, central banks are not even, a, well, I use the word, venerable institutions. They do not reserve any great respect from us, because in Europe, where the bloody thing was invented, it was invented because the unpaid and unpayable debt of kings had to be funded. And there was no other way of funding that, that than giving the banking interest a monopolium of issuing paper money. And if the kings did that, then the banks would do the favor to the king and 
fund the king's unpaid and unpayable debt. And how did they fund it? That they funded it by spreading the debt over the whole population. So people had to assume the debt of kings. And that is, ladies and gentlemen, the story how central banks in Europe were born. And that's the thing which the covetous moneyed interest in the United States wanted to imitate because by now the United States has the greatest unfunded debt in the world. It's not only unpaid but it's unpayable. But if you can let the federal system roll on then they will fund it for the government funded for a time, but the longer the thing is spread out, the worse the end will be. And that is the big problem, that the Fed still has lots, has lots of tricks up in its sleeves and they can pull up Ameros and this and that and that. They can say that the natural the national parks of the United States are worth trillions of dollars so let's print money and back it with our national parks just like the French confiscated church property and issued paper money called the assignats the word comes from assigning assign the real estate value to back paper money. What a wonderful idea. Same thing could be tried in the United States or, 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 or we know there's lots of gold suspended in the oceans in microscopic forms. We also know it can be recovered. The problem is the cost of recovery is much greater than the price of gold. But why not issue paper money against gold suspended in the waters of the oceans or some such trick? No, there's no end to this. The problem is that in the, the longer you postpone the evil day when you have to face the bill, the worse it will be. Rudy. Yes, uh, you're exposed to some idea that the United States might have a new currency soon, one for offshore and one for internal, because they want to have a firm currency offshore, but a very loose one internal. It's something like South Africa did for many years. Uh, do you think it's a possibility or something behind this? Wait, wait. I just want to repeat it. The, the question that Rudy asked was the possibility of. Uh, of the United States instituting a, a dual form of currency, one for uh, external use and one for internal use. Uh. Um, well, this has been tried before. The f most famous episode was uh, Hitler's Germany. They, they had uh, marks for internal use and they had marks for external use. And the communists uh, also had, I think, the, actually, uh, 
Bolshevist Russia was the first which applied that. Hitler was a poor imitator, but it, he was much more ruthless, so he could make it stick, whereas the uh, communist, the Russian system was very leaky. An example was that if you, there were ocean liner boats crossing the ocean between Europe and America, and uh, the, the Germans had theirs, and the Russians had theirs too, and uh, <clears throat> uh, passengers could take their own currency and exchange it to a special currency issued on the boat during that one week trip, you see? And uh, if they had any of those uh, chips uh, at the end of the journey, they could go back to the purser and he would make the exchange back. And, um, and a very interesting account I, I read about this, that the Germans made the system leak free. There was no, you might think that you could smuggle uh, you see, a lot of German marks got out of the country, but there was just no way to smuggling them back <laughs> into yeah. Germany so you could try. Because even these boats, I mean, they were so leak-proof that no bank in Switzerland or anywhere else in the world could give you a penny of credit for a pile of German marks. But if you had Russian rubles, there was a, there was a, 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 a published uh, market for them. Uh, sure, it was only a fraction of the face value, but you could get something for the Russian rubles. Why? Because <laughs> you could bribe the, the purser and the various people who served on these boats, and they would make some exchange. So there was a way to get back these banknotes into Bolshevist Russia. Ruthless as the government was, and they could shoot people on the spot for these currency violations. But you could be the Germans, <laughs> not the Germans. They could make the system leak free. So that's the answer. The United States could have all kinds of, I mean, this was only one of the tricks. There were many others. And uh, sure, they could try it in the United States. But the free market, there's nothing like the free market. So uh, I, I don't hold out great hope for uh, these tricks working. Any? More questions? Uh, okay. Now, the next uh, session will be at 2.30 and I would like to talk about uh, the title is Don't Fix the Price of Gold. I will talk about Milton Friedman and his this ingenious idea of suggesting the gold standard is just a price fixing scheme and I will explain why it is not.
And I still haven't said a word about about uh, Adam Smith. So if I have another five minutes or so, I would like to mention this because this he is in the title of the lecture series. We have a problem in the world and especially in the United States that the Non, the monetary system is not working and obviously it's getting worse and worse and at one point it might just break down which will be a very painful moment and uh, the problem is how can it be fixed and uh, we are of course on one side of the issue we say that it, any kind of realistic solution has to take constitutional money into account, which means that gold and silver should be serve, uh, serving as a basis for money. And there is the mint, uh, which would be the instrument whereby people can make its decision to create money good. So far so good. But there is a problem and that's where the so-called hard money camp cannot agree, which is very unfortunate, but we just have to face it. And this is the problem that demand for money is not even. Just to give you the simplest example, at Christmas time the demand for money, hand-to-hand -hand money, is much greater, maybe several multiples of the normal demand. Or at harvest time, when the uh, harvest is brought in, grain harvest or what have you, and it has to be exported and so on, financed, uh, there may be a much greater demand for money than at um, um, the dead of the winter when uh, less economic activity is going on. So how to solve that problem? The so-called 100% uh, gold standard school which was uh, making its propaganda under Murray Rothbard, while he lived, he's dead now, was uh, very active and saying that there's no problem because, because uh, uh, the market will take care of that uh, and uh, the fractional reserve banking is bad and cannot be repaired, and so on and so forth. But realistically, if you look at the problem, you will realize this is not a satisfactory problem, the satisfactory solution to the problem, because the demand for money at Christmas time, for just to take this example, could be so great that the lack of, of uh, purchasing medium could be so great 
that the system could seize up. And then all the enemies of the gold standard would jump at and say, see, I told you, the gold standard is contractionist. It does not allow trade. It's a break on development and so on and so forth. And in fact, the monetary system, which they proudly called 100% gold standard, could break down. So, as a matter of fact, yes, there, is, there has to be a solution. And the solution is not what we dream of, but the solution has been given to us by no lesser a person than Adam Smith, an absolute genius of economics who said that the market creates the solutions to the problem and the solution to this particular problem is the market would give temporary monetary qualities to the paper which merchants uh, write obliging one to the other to make payments before the market is uh, before the uh, good, the consumer good is removed from the market within 91 days, 13 weeks, 3 months, 1 quarter. Okay. This very simple idea is an amazing solution to a very great and very real problem. And I am advocating Adam Smith. All my enemies, my people who try to engage me in a discussion, are afraid of mentioning Adam Smith's name. This is amazing. I've been engaged in discussion with half a dozen people and they would never ever mention the name of Adam Smith. They just talk about me as if I invented these ideas which have the best pedigree an economic idea can have, going back to Adam Smith. So I think it's a fascinating story, it's an interesting story. I certainly tried to make it interesting for you. We are going to talk about Adam Smith a great deal in the next 12 lectures. So thank you very much and uh, we'll see you at 2.30. And there will be a third session at 4.30. Just a small break between the two afternoon lectures. I would like